All right. Um, welcome, everyone, to this next session of our overview of First Peter. Um, and we are really going to start to fly through some verses here. So, um, but as a quick reminder of where we have come so far, we have a letter written by the Apostle Peter to the churches in Asia Minor that um, we don't know exactly what sort of difficulties they're facing, but they seem to be facing some sort of persecution or hostility and suffering in the context in which they're living. And so Peter is writing to them to encourage them with the truth of what Jesus has done for them, um, to remind them of what he has done in his death and resurrection, and to remind them also of the promises that he has um, when he returns one day. Um, and last week, Pastor Peter was looking at um, some of the identity that comes with those promises, um, that the, these people have now become the new temple where God is meeting with his people, and they are the new kingdom that God is establishing for all of eternity. One, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible is 1 Peter 2, 9, where he describes us as a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal pe- priesthood, a people for his own possession. And at the same time, Peter recognizes that, that this identity can be confusing when they go and look at the circumstances in which they're living. How is it true that we are a chosen people when we're facing such difficulty? How are we a holy nation when we are excluded minority in the towns in which we are living? And so what we're going to see in this next section, this week and next week, we're going to go from 1 Peter 2.11 all the way to 1 Peter 4.19. So I'm going to have to move quick. Um, But what we're going to see in here is that Peter is helping them to understand how they are both chosen and exiles. He's going to begin to retell their story, to redefine some terms, so that they can help begin to understand how both things are true at the same time. Both that Jesus has and is working all things to his ends, and they are facing suffering in this present moment. Um, he's going to put those concepts into their specific context. And there's really a lot of ideas and concepts in this section. So what, I, what I'm going to try to do in these next two weeks, is I'm just going to pick up a couple ideas, a couple words that Peter uses to help kind of redefine this story, that we can see how he is applying those ideas to their circumstances. Um, these, I don't know that these are going to be the, the only concepts in here or even the main concepts that Peter is drawing out, but I think it's going to be helpful to see what he's doing. It's going to help us kind of draw that theme all the way through all the different examples and ideas that he talks through. What he's really doing is trying to help them see how their identity in Jesus Christ is shaping everything about the way that they live and that the suffering they're experiencing now is not disconnected from God's plan but is the way that God has chosen to work in all of history, especially in the person of Jesus Christ who has defined their reality. So the two concepts that we're going to look at this week, we're going to look at the definition of freedom. How does Peter define freedom? He's going to call them in this passage to live as people who are free. But I think we'll see what he means by that, maybe something a little different than than you might bring to that or, or that even the his immediate hearers would have wanted that to me. And then next week, we're going to look at how Peter redefines suffering and the end to which suffering leads. So 
Um, but as we get into this this week, we're looking at the idea of freedom. And, and when you think about freedom, you can't really think of freedom just in the abstract. Right? Freedom needs, uh, it needs a source and it needs a direction. Right? You need to be freed by something. Something has the power or the ability to free you. And you need to be freed from something and to something. I can't just be free in general. So if you imagine a slave, a slave needs some means, some power to free him from his master to live and work as he chooses on his own. Right? There's, it needs a context to make sense. And we living in America, you know, and freedom's a big deal here. We have a lot of discussion around freedom, but we have a particular definition and direction of freedom. Right? American freedom is based on the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that you have a defined set of rights. And those rights are designed to free you from the oppression of the government that would try to tell you how to live in certain contexts or force a religion or force a certain way of life on you. And it's going to free you to live the way that you choose. To life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That's the context. That's the direction and source of American freedom. But if you pick up that definition of freedom and try to and put it into what Peter's talking about today, you're probably going to be confused. Because what we're going to find is that Peter has a different definition of freedom than that. He's got a source and he's got a direction, but it's not the same thing as what you pick up if you just used all that you've learned about freedom in your American history class. Probably even a different definition of freedom than what his hearers would have heard in the first century. Right? They would have maybe just wanted to be free from the persecution in their town. Just make all of this stop happening. How can we get out and be free from this suffering? And that's not what Peter's talking about either. So as we go through this passage... If you find that some of the things that, that Peter's saying sort of are shifting what you're thinking or don't quite feel like they fit your life or where you want them to, consider maybe that's because what Peter is doing is adjusting your definition of freedom or adjusting the purpose to which you need to be free. So we get into this. We're going to read this passage. We're just kind of going to go through this whole... Uh, we're going to get up through 1 Peter 3, 9 today. So I'm just going to read this chunk at a time. Um, a little bigger chunks than I normally read, but again, that's just because we have a lot of concepts, and I want to see uh, this one big idea kind of pulled through all of this passage. Starting in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
There's a lot in that passage. But one of the first things you see is there's clearly two groups of people. Right? There are the, the church, the people that Peter is writing to, and then there is the world. And in the world, you have the passions of the flesh, you have human institutions, you have people who are slandering and persecuting the church. And a lot of what Peter is doing is telling us how do we as the church relate to the world. And note what he doesn't say to do here. He doesn't say, in those who are slandering you and, and speaking evil against you, you go make sure everybody understands what's right. You resist them, you put up the best arguments, you make sure nobody says anything wrong about you. He doesn't teach them to resist the world here. He doesn't even teach them to live separate from the world. If you're having all these problems, you guys just go make sure you band together and kind of live on your own so that, that that's not a problem for you anymore. We don't resist the world. We don't live separate from the world. He actually tells us to submit to every human institution. In the same paragraph, submit to every human institution and live as people who are free. So somehow, Peter's definition of freedom does not mean that submission to human institutions and freedom can't go together. Somehow both of those can be true at the same time. And so you see that this is a different definition of freedom than you might have brought into this passage. Right? American freedom is dependent on you having your rights, on institutions not trampling on your rights. And if your rights are submitted to evil institutions, you aren't free by definition. But that's not what Peter's talking about. He's got a different definition of freedom. So what does he mean? What does Peter mean when he says, live as people who are free? Well, the first thing I think we see, and we've, if you've been paying attention all along, everything in 1 Peter is shaped by the person of Jesus Christ. Our freedom, the source of our freedom, is what Jesus Christ has done for us. If you go back just one chapter, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, he says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of of Christ. That is the source of our freedom. We are free because Jesus brought life out of death, because of his death and resurrection. And everything about the way we live now is shaped by what he did then. And what's the direction of our freedom then? If that's what the source of our freedom is, what are we free from and what are we free to do? What Peter's been talking about through this whole book and again in this section is that we are free from sin. We are free from evil. That's what he ransomed us from. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 15, just a few verses before he says we were ransomed. Peter urges, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Again, at the beginning of what we just read, 1 Peter 2, 11, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And again, in verse 16, he puts these two next to each other. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. We are free not from the power of suffering, the power of human institutions. We are free from Sin, the need to be worldly, the need to act like the world acts. And he puts these in contrast. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up 
for evil. What, what does that mean? What does it look like if we use freedom as a cover-up for evil? We'll go on a little thought experiment with me here. What, imagine if you are bringing an American definition of freedom, and you are living in this time, and you say, what I need now is to stop these institutions, these, these guild masters or whoever is slandering us or excluding us from trade, the way they're mistreating us. We need to figure out how can we defend our rights and make sure we are able to trade and to live freely and to, to maybe get this guy replaced or, or, under, or reveal the problems of what he's doing. What are you talking about there? You're talking about freedom. I need to be free from all these problems. But what's driving you? What's motivating you in that moment? How much of your desires and your energy are coming out of a sense of fear? That if they continue to treat us this way, then this is what will happen. You're talking about freedom, but what's really underneath that, what's being covered up, is your fear. Or imagine if you're being just slandered. Someone says something about you or is gossiping about you or posting things about you on the internet and are just not true. They're unkind. They're uncareful. They're, they're not caring for you well in that moment. And you go out and you say, you can't talk about me that way. I, I shouldn't be subject to this. I, you shouldn't be treating me this way. It's not fair that you're doing that. Again, you're sort of talking about your freedom. I don't need to deal with all of this mess that you're creating. But how much of your pride is driving that? That you have a reputation that you don't want tarnished. You don't think you should be treated this way. You're, you have a respect for yourself you don't want to see diminished. You're talking about freedom, but what's driving you is pride. Or maybe it's simpler than that. Maybe you're, you're looking around at the world and you're dealing with suffering and you're saying, are we making this too hard on ourselves? You know, I know we're called to live like Christ, but do we really have to be as extreme in all of these cases? Do we really have to um, abstain from, you know, these sort of parties that are going on? Or the, I know we're not supposed to have this festival, but, but I got, read this letter from Paul, and, you know, he said that it's just meat. So maybe it's not a big deal if we participate in that. Maybe our lives don't need to look so different than the people around us. Maybe we're free in Christ to live however we want, and, and he's done all the work, so it's not that big of a deal how we live now. We're free to live as we want. You're talking about freedom, but again, what's driving you? Your lusts, your greed, your desire to just look like everyone else, to live comfortably in your world. You're talking about freedom, but you're using freedom as a cover-up for sin. And that's what Peter is saying is exactly not what we are free from. We're not free from problems or difficulty in the world. We're free from sin. Live free from sin. Don't talk about freedom to cover up sin. Live free from that. That's what's most important here. And what are we free to do? We're going to see this more as we go through the rest of this chapter. But Peter is saying we are free to bear witness to Christ. What is he calling us to live like? Where did he get this idea that what's most important is not that we are not subject to suffering, but that we can even submit to human institutions? And what's most important is to live free from sin. You know who that sounds like? That sounds like what he learned from Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 5, verse 39, Jesus said, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other 
also. Down in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Where did Peter get this idea that we should be subject to every human institution? He learned it from Jesus. And not only from what Jesus taught, but from how Jesus lived. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulled out a sword to defend him, and Jesus said, no, that's not how I've come to live. That's not what I've come to do. I've come to endure that suffering so that you would be free from sin. And he willingly goes to the cross. If he'd wanted, legions of angels would have come and freed him in an instant, but he was free to submit to the cross because he wanted to bring life out of death. And so when we freely submit to human institutions and prioritize living free from sin, we are reflecting Jesus Christ. That's what we are free to do. When Peter says live as people who are free, that's what he means. Live as people who have been set free from sin and are free now to reflect Jesus Christ. And so we are to live so free, so confident in what Christ has done and what Christ will do, that the difficulties and the sufferings in the world around us have no power over us. Not that they can't do things to us, not that we are separate from them and can't be touched by them, but we're free from them because our confidence is not in the rights that we have today. We don't need rights. We have Christ, and that is why we are free. And then he takes this concept and he gives us two illustrations of what it looks like to live free in Christ. He's going to talk about servants and he's going to talk about wives. He says, if you want to understand what this concept looks like put into context, here's two examples for you. So let's look at these examples and see what we can learn as we look from them. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in this, his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see that principle played out? When you are suffering unjustly and you endure it, then you are reflecting Christ. You're living as Christ lived. And that's what Peter is calling us to. And he's talking here not just about just suffering, not just when things are happening to us that we deserve, but specifically when we don't deserve them. And that is a gracious thing. And, and again, this sounds like what Jesus taught. 
just after he says to pray for those who persecute you. If you go on, Matthew 5, 45 to 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We aren't called just to endure suffering that is just. We are specifically called to endure suffering that is unjust. What difference is it if we endure suffering when it's, when it's deserved? That's nothing. There's no example in that. That's just what everyone's supposed to do. But Jesus is calling us to do what he did. And this does not make sense if you are not, if you're just trying to live your, your best life now, if you're just trying to enjoy this season. You have to understand what you're called to, that we are called to reflect Christ, to live as he lived, to live in a way that when people see us, they say, oh, that's what Jesus was like. That's what it's like for someone to go willingly to a cross to bring goodness out of evil. One way I think about this is that, is that he, he's calling us to always be the good guy. Right? If, you, if you read stories, there's often an, an example of, of some sort of injustice is done to the main character. Right? And, and out of that story, there's, they have a decision. How are they going to respond? Are they going to respond in kind? Are they going to retaliate and, and bring about justice? Right? If you watch a Western, that's always what happens. Right? You go hunt down the bad guys and you do to them whatever they did to you. That's, that's the way it works. But in a lot of cases, you find that when you do that, there's, nothing's really better in the world. Right? The, the world is still the same sort of broken place. Maybe that one injustice is sort of balanced out now, but the, everything's still pretty much the same. It's still a world full of outlaws. And sometimes even the person who goes and brings revenge becomes the bad guy. Are they really any better now than the people who did the same thing to them? If you watch any sort of, if you get into any sort of a bad guy origin stories, this is how it happens. Something bad happens to them first. They were mistreated, and the way they responded was to defend themselves and say, no one can ever do that to me again, and then they became the mob boss, or I mean, whatever the story is. But there's another option. Sometimes they choose not to pursue justice, not to respond in the same way as been what's done to them. Instead, they choose to take the suffering in themselves. I'm going, the suffering's going to end with me. I'm going to take it, and instead, I'm going to return to you good. I'm going to do what is good in the world, regardless of what has been done to me. And it's those stories where something's really changed in the world. It's that power to bring goodness out of suffering that can bring about true change. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He took the suffering in himself. And because of that, life is for all of us. By his wounds, we are healed. And that's how we are called to live too, to give what we have received to endure suffering, even unjust suffering, and instead of returning what is fair, to return good. That's what we are called to do. One quick caveat on this. 
Um, when you read this passage, don't apply just the context. Right? Peter's not writing here as a description of what best labor practices are. Right? He's writing about a master-servant relationship. He's writing about this sort of... Um, this sort of labor situation. But he's not trying to say, and here's how everyone should order all of their workplace. He's not condoning mistreatment, certainly. Right? If you go back to what he learned from Jesus in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, one part of it was about not returning evil for evil. But a lot of other parts were about living well towards other people. Right? So this is not a whole... Context. It's not a whole description of how we should think about injustice in the world. There are, when it's in our power to do good, we don't say like, oh, well, it's better if you're an example of Jesus and just endure this suffering. Right? He's not writing to masters to say like, oh, you know, it's, okay. it's not a big deal if you kind of keep your servants down and don't treat them very well. Like, that's fine because then they're an example of Christ. That's not what he's saying. Right? He's not writing primarily about this context. Right? He's got an idea of how we reflect Christ when we face mistreatment. And he's giving an example in a specific context. But you've got to hold both of those ideas together to understand how to apply this passage. When you face mistreatment and you have a decision on how you're going to respond to that, this is how you respond. And we have plenty of examples to apply that. But we need to understand rightly how both the concept and the concept, what is Peter really talking about to apply this passage correctly? Next, we have one more example. Peter looks to wives and says, what does it look like for you to reflect Christ in the way that he endured suffering? 1 Peter, 1, or 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit." which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. No, he starts this with likewise. So we're doing the same idea. Just like servants reflect Christ by the way they endure unjust treatment by their masters, Wives can reflect Christ by the way they relate to their husbands, especially to unbelieving husbands. And again, it's important here to understand this is not written about the ideal marriage. It's not aiming first at the context. This isn't a very long description of marriage. You're not going to learn a lot about how to be a wife from this passage or how to be a husband from this passage. It's written to a very specific instance of how you can reflect Christ in one area of your marriage. But don't come to this passage and ask, what's the main definition of a wife? Because that's just not what Peter's talking about. He's illustrating his concept. So don't over-apply this passage, but do see what is it that Peter is trying to get us to see. Again, he's trying to say, how do you reflect Christ? Even that part about a gentle and quiet spirit. It's not about wives. That's about reflecting 
Christ. Because who else is described this way? Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Who are they reflecting with a gentle and quiet spirit? When you live this way, when you live towards your husbands, not demanding your rights, not insisting they treat you a certain way, but enduring even unjust treatment by your husbands in a way that points to Christ. That's who you look like. And they do this regardless of how their husbands treat them. What do we know about Sarah as a wife? Not a, not a lot. But what do we know about her husband? Sometimes a knucklehead. Right? This is one of my favorite things to pick on. But twice, twice he passes her off as his sister and lets another man take her home. We don't know exactly what happened in that home, but it probably did not endear her to him. But how does she respond to that? She calls him Lord. She respects him. She treats him well, regardless of how he treated her. She has a gentle and quiet spirit. And when we live this way, we look like what's commended in Sarah, and we reflect Christ. That's the point. That's what we need to be doing here. He's saying this is how, in this context, you can look like Christ. You can win him without a word because you don't have to explain Christ to him. He sees him in you. One quick note here, and then he turns to husbands, and we get one verse as husbands. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, in a sense, that's a continuation of the same idea, right? As wives are supposed to relate to their husbands as a reflection of Christ, so husbands are to relate to their wives as a reflection of Christ. Live with them in an understanding way. Don't overabuse your power. But this, in another sense, this verse sounds a little bit different than the other passages, right? Those, when we're speaking to servants or we're speaking to wives, it's very encouraging, right? This is Um, a reflection of Christ when you don't revile as he did not revile in return. When you look like him with a gentle and quiet spirit, this is beautiful in God's sight. Husbands, live with your wives in a gentle way or else God won't hear your prayers. You hear that's different? It's a little bit of a warning, isn't it? And, And what is he doing there? I think what he might be doing here is saying, husbands, don't misunderstand what I just said to your wives. I told them to submit to you. I'm not telling you to tell them to submit to you. I'm telling you to relate to them with understanding. Love them as Christ loved the church, as Peter or Paul would say. Don't over-apply this passage and think I'm telling you this is the ideal marriage relationship where it's all about they have to do whatever you say. Because if you forget that they're co-heirs with you in Christ and you mistreat them, God's not going to hear your prayers. Don't overapply this, husbands. You are to relate to them as a reflection of Christ, just like wives are to relate to you as a reflection of Christ, just as servants are to relate to their masters as a reflection of Christ. That's what all of us are doing primarily. We are reflecting Christ, and that's how he ends this section. He turns to the whole group, and he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This is what all of us are doing. As Christ did not return reviling for reviling, did not repay evil for evil, but instead chose to do good in every circumstance, regardless of how we, he was treated. All of you live like that. Your story has been shaped by Christ. You've been freed by him. You've been freed from sin and you've been freed to reflect him. That's the setting in which you live. And even the difficulty and the mistreatment, the suffering that you're enduring right now is an opportunity. You are still free to live as a reflection of Christ. Live free to what Christ has called you to be free. And live free not only because of what he has done, but because in doing so, you will receive a blessing. And that's my teaser for next week because we're going to see how does suffering lead to blessing? How do we obtain a blessing by reflecting Christ in every circumstance, regardless of how we're treated? You have to come back next week to hear that as we finish this section. So thank you.